Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. A new report states that a number of stadiums are reinforcing their existing Wi-Fi systems as a response to higher demand by fans within the stadium, surfing the web, messaging, pictures, video, all of the new apps. Paul Kapuska of the Mobile Sports Report tells us why that's just the beginning. And Paul is among the first to see the brand new U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. He'll share that experience with you. Later, what actually happened in Canton, Ohio, the site of the annual Hall of Fame exhibition game, which was canceled. Longtime stadium manager Bill Squires reviews the incident and compares it with challenges from his own career. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran looks at how new stadiums affect ticket prices. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, Bill, the Arlington City Council made it official this week, unanimously approving an ordinance calling for a special election vote in November for a new Rangers stadium. Critics were many at the meeting who questioned the need for a new venue. There's no reason we need a new ballpark right now. The the Texas Rangers are here already. The stadium, again, is only 22 years of age. But Arlington Mayor Jeff Williams countered that a new ballpark will be a boon for the city. We are trying to move forward here and have the opportunity for us to increase our tourism, to increase the stature of our community. The anti-stadium group Citizens for a Better Arlington are vowing to defeat the measure, which calls for partial funding to come from taxes on tickets at Rangers Stadium events and parking. To Florida, where the Tampa Bay Rays have launched a website for fans to contribute ideas for a new ballpark. The interactive site features surveys and a video that touts the spirit and energy of Tampa Bay. We are a different kind of community. Our culture, distinctive. Our fans, one of a kind. Which is why our next ballpark needs to be just like us. Fans can submit ideas and features that they'd like to see in a new ballpark. The Rays continue to vet possible stadium sites in the Tampa St. Pete area. Their current lease at Tropicana Field expires in 2027. And it was a blast from the past for San Francisco 49er fans this week. The Niners returned to their original home, Kizar Stadium, for an open practice. Kizar was the home of the team from 1946 through 1970 when they moved to Candlestick Park. Fans told KGO TV they were feeling nostalgic. I started out here. I used to be 10 years old and ride my bike over the 17th Street Hill and drive down here. I ride down here and, and just haven't missed a game ever since. Been going to 49er games for 48 years. I mean, I'm a candlestick kid myself, but Kizar, you go back in history and just shows my son that they played here, candlestick, and you know, Stanford Stadium as well. And just show the history and the legacy of the Niners. Now that I've been being in Santa Clara, it's just all about the Niners. Even Niners linebacker Navarro Bowman was feeling old school. 
Yeah, I've never been here, you know, so just to see where it all started, uh, it was just great to just, you know, get on this field. Now I can say I, I played and practiced at uh, Kizar Stadium. The current version of Kizar Stadium is a scaled-back version of the original 59,000-seat venue that had to be torn down following the 1989 earthquake. Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. If you want to know where the intersection of technology and sports can be found, probably in a brand new stadium, we're going to get an overarching view of where technology and sports are currently married and where we will see additional growth in the future. And for that, we turn to Paul Kapuska who is the editor and founder of Mobile Sports Report, an independently focused publication reflecting the trends in stadium technology. Paul joins us from Colorado. Paul, it's great to visit with you. How did you develop such an interest in this, Paul? And where did you sense that these two, what seemed to be rather diverse elements, were going to meet here in the middle? And certainly our new stadiums show that. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the air today. A pleasure. Um, I, I have a unique background, uh, William, and it has to do with the fact that um, long ago, before I started uh, covering technology, I was a sports writer. So I came out of college and covered sports, covered the Denver Broncos, went mm-hmm. to a Super Bowl. Later on in life, I got into technology. The moment, the aha moment for a mobile sports report came in 2011. When after the Super Bowl that year, and I heard I was at a conference and heard an executive from AT&T saying that for the first time, there was more cellular traffic leaving the stadium than coming in. Hmm. So what that meant was that for the first time, people were taking more pictures, uh, 2011, maybe a little bit of video, but mostly pictures and sending them out to people. Now, this was, you know, if you've been around as long as I have. You can remember the days when cell phones first came to stadiums, and it was frowned upon. You Mm -hmm. didn't want to be that guy with the cell phone out at the stadium. Mm -hmm. Well, I think suffice to say, times have really changed. Now everybody's got their phone out at the stadium. From a business or a beat point of view, knowing what I knew about the cellular networks that had been constructed, I knew that there was going to be problems in stadiums and other large public venues if everybody came and got on their phone at once. So we just started exploring that uh, phenomenon, and uh, here we are today. We are seeing a uh, very interesting bend in technology, it seems to me, and a lot of what we're going to be talking about here is Wi-Fi. And, of course, Wi-Fi had a relatively simple design. It was never intended to do, I don't think, what we're attempting to do with it at stadiums today, which is kind of a, a super mass media for Thousands of people simultaneously. Wi-Fi was never designed with that kind of a backbone. Paul, what type of problems did that create when somebody got the idea, we really have to expand on this? Actually, Wi-Fi solves the problem of big crowds, mainly because it only goes so far from the antenna. So the problem when you get into a stadium is that you have 20,000, 40,000, 100,000 people And if it's just a regular cellular network around, you just can't put enough antennas close enough without interfering with each other. So what Wi-Fi actually does is it allows you to put more antennas into a stadium-type situation, and the signal only goes so far. 
So you don't have people, say, from Section 10 trying to reach over to Section 20 or 30 and use the Wi-Fi over there. Um, you're, you're right. It wasn't designed for this use, but it actually turns out that it's pretty good for this use. People are getting it done. And nowhere will you find it better implemented to the moment, probably, than Levi Stadium. Unpack that a little bit for us, Paul. Just what were the changes and how dramatic were they? So it was, you know, designed from the ground up, you know, in the middle of Silicon Valley. And you know, credit to the 49ers and Jed York and Al Guido and the team there for looking at the stadium and saying, you know, people are using mobile devices now. How can we take advantage of that to not just make it a place where your, your phone can connect, but improve the fan experience while also helping the business side. But what that meant from a design standpoint is they went in thinking, we're going to make this the most connected, the most wireless, you know, friendly stadium anywhere. We're going to put in more antennas than anyone has ever put in before. We're going to do interesting things like put the antennas under the seats. They actually spent the, the season before Levi's Open doing a lot of testing in the old Candlestick Park. And I can tell you from experience, Candlestick Park was one of the worst stadiums. Your cell phone didn't work. I mean, you, it was just a huge, you know, dead spot. Hmm. Um, but they they took a few sections out of the stadium and, and tested it out. So really, what they did is two things: they built a great communications infrastructure with Wi-Fi, high performance Wi-Fi. I mean, we're talking like. 20, 30 megabits per second is is a normal speed there. Mm -hmm. But then they also took a philosophy of we're going to design an app that focuses on services and not just on content or stats, but they actually built their own application development company, a company called Venue Next, and it was funded by the 49ers and some of the 49ers uh, investors. And that app concentrates on things like digital tickets, on parking, on wayfinding. You can open up the app and you're a little blue dot and you can guide yourself around the stadium. And I think the most revolutionary thing was you could order food and have it delivered to your seat in any seat in the stadium. Mm -hmm. That is pretty slick. We're going to hold it right there, Paul. When we come back, we're going to explore the shock that the folks at Levi's got when they realized that they needed still more bandwidth than they had. And we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. We're talking about the intersection point of technology and sports. The Modern Stadium, our guest, is Paul Kapuska, the founder of Mobile Sports Report. And 
Paul, you had a very exciting experience recently, and I would love for you to share that with our listeners. You had a chance to tour the U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis in its final stage of completion. Give us your impressions of the plant there and how this stadium will play. I think the thing that most impressed me, other than the very striking Viking ship design, uh, on the outside, which you know, you look at it on the outside and it doesn't look like a stadium. It looks like uh, something from Star Wars that just landed in the downtown Minneapolis. It sure does. The technology part of it was so incredibly well thought out. It, it may not be the you know single best network. It may not be the fastest, but all the pieces and parts together have been thought out so well that I think this will be. You know, it won't be the best in any one single area, but they've got the latest and greatest and the latest thinking in every technology topic you can have from, you know, Wi-Fi. They're they're using railing uh, mounted antennas and they've got them all through the bowl. It's really interesting. They've got a great um, cellular infrastructure built actually by Verizon and the other carriers will be able to use that. But But I think what was more impressive to me too was how they're going to use this technology to sync up with things like the downtown area. So the police, the, you know, the, the traffic people are all going to have access to the stadium network so that fans can get a message on their phone. Hey, this road is blocked. Take this other road into the stadium. Come visit, you know, X restaurant downtown after the game take a train, the the light rail stops right in front of the stadium. I'm completely impressed with the, the architecture, and I think the technology will just make it so much of a better experience by removing all the pain points that you usually have of parking and ingress and egress and, and ordering food that it's just going to be a delight. There's a little bit of a back to the future thing here, too, in the sense that in recent years, all of the new generation domes have featured retractable roof structures, which allow natural air to get in there. This is a fixed roof. However, the sides open up. Certainly the west side, which faces toward the skyline, has a huge window structure, which actually opens to allow air in. How does that work? It's um, a 95 foot high. I believe that's correct. You know, don't quote me exactly, but it's 95 foot high sliding glass uh, doors. And what that will do is on days when it's not coming down two feet of snow, as it could happen in Minneapolis, you'll be able to open up the one side of the stadium and let air in. I can tell you walking around inside that stadium Mm -hmm. because half of it is covered in glass. You don't feel like you're inside a dome. It's Mm -hmm. not the feeling you get, say, in other places where the roof is closed or inside a closed stadium. When we were in there, they had no lights on at all. And yet it was just using the light of the day. You could walk around anywhere inside other than, you know, say down in the basement and see just fine. It's very light. It's very airy. It's a design element, as you said, is is being incorporated into all these new stadiums. And I think because nobody wants to be in a cave. People like the feeling of the open air stadium. They like the convenience of the roof. If you can have two, both of those things and do it in a way that's visually appealing and makes it a more enjoyable experience, 
uh, why not? I, I mean, it, to me, it's just it, it's some great thinking about what is it like to be a fan rather than what is it like to build this building. All right. Well, very good. And we hope to have you back again. This is, a, as we say, a, uh, a moving goalpost. Everything is changing. And we love to check in from time to time and get some trends and find out what is going on. Paul, we thank you very much for the visit. Happy to be here. A pleasure. Paul Kapuska of the Mobile Sports Report. Now, when we return, Mark Madoran and I will talk shop. That's coming up next. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is time to talk shop once again, and for that, we turn to Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website, who joins us every week. We remind you that Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out at stadiumsusa.com. You can also listen to podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe to us on iTunes. Of course, listen to us each week on SB Nation Radio right here. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Stadiums USA, and you can also check us out on Facebook. Mark, very interesting what's going on with the Rams. They are making some changes to the L.A. Coliseum as it relates to actual seating capacity for the upcoming season based on demand. The demand has been out of sight. Take us through this. Well, the number of tickets made available had to be increased. The Coliseum does hold over 90,000, but the Rams did not intend to sell anywhere near that many seats. They were thinking around 70,000 or something in that range for preseason games. And now it looks like they're going to have to bump that way up, maybe into the high 80s or possibly the, the low 90s. What they're concerned about is maybe the stadium really isn't ready for that, and they don't want fans to go there, have a bad experience, and not want to come back. So there are some questions, but there's no doubt that the fans of L.A. have welcomed back the Rams. They definitely want to be out there and see the Rams play. That is a big stadium, Mark, and the seats we're referring to do not lie between the goal lines. They are way over to the east side, so in effect, these are not very good seats, are they? No, they're, they're less than desirable seats. They're corner seats, a lot of them, and, and they're, you don't get a very good view of the field. And I, I think the Rams don't really want to charge people 60 or $80 for a seat that really isn't give them a really good view of the game. Mark, a number of economists are weighing in on projected ticket price changes if a new stadium is built in San Diego for the Chargers. Good discussion here as the city prepares for a November stadium vote. Give us the numbers. Well, there are quite a few experts discussing the NFL stadium situation in San Diego. 
most predict some less than favorable news for local fans. First, many of the locals feel like they're getting double hit. Uh, The first hit is the tax increase to build the stadium, but it's a hotel tax increase. Normally, the locals aren't paying for local hotels, so it doesn't really affect them quite as much. But there usually is an increase in ticket prices when new stadiums open. For example, Dennis Coates of the University of Maryland has studied ticket prices at new stadiums, and he says an average increase of 17 to 25 percent can be expected. Um, Philip Porter, a University of South Florida professor, says 25 percent is likely. You never know what's going to happen in that first year, and as we know, The prices never seem to come down. That's not something that happens. The average cost of a ticket, by the way, at Qualcomm currently is $84.55. And the league average is just above that at $85.83. The cost for a family of four to go currently to Qualcomm, that includes parking and typical concessions, is $479.19. And that's right at the league average of $480. But that number is likely to change dramatically when that new stadium opens. But first, they've got to vote on it and see what's going to happen. And uh, the surveys we've seen, there's no way of predicting how that vote's going to go. Yeah, I was just going to say that doesn't look like a slam dunk to me, particularly what we've seen in the past on other votes there. The uh, current surveys say that there's about 30 to 35 percent strongly in favor of the the new stadium. Another 30 to 40 percent probably strongly against. That still leaves a lot of people in the middle that'll decide whether that vote goes yay or nay. Well, maybe some of those fans will travel to Mississippi to check out Mississippi State football and what is a very unique viewing experience coming up for Bulldogs fans from a rather unique location. This is sensational, Mark. Tell us about it. Well, Mississippi State had an area called the Terrace at the football stadium and that it just was kind of a wide open area and they decided to turn that Terrace area or a portion of it into cabanas. So they built these cabanas up there in the Terrace area that Cabana uh, includes 12 tickets and food at the scoreboard club. They sold the cabanas out in 48 hours. That's all it took. And they're not cheap. They're 18000 bucks a piece. Wow. So, um, uh, Bill, you could just go see all the Mississippi State football you want from the cabana. Sounds like a great place. They wanted to bring the tailgating concept, the, the feeling of that tailgating into the stadium. And that's why they built these cabanas. Um it seems like stadiums are moving toward a lot more premium seating, and that's the, the new trend in stadium uh, ticket sales. Yeah, how about double-deck cabanas? That would be pretty interesting, wouldn't it? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Mark, each week we take a look back on some of the significant dates in stadium history. What do you have for us this week? This week, 1962, you remember, the Dodgers protest the wet field at San Francisco's Candlestick Park. The Dodgers claimed that the Giants were attempting to slow down fleet-footed Maury Wills. Remember, in the old days, they weren't the only ones to slow down the track by (laughs) making it a little soft. In 1975, the first game ever at the Louisiana Superdome, a preseason contest, the Houston Oilers beat the New Orleans Saints 13-7. 
And this week in 1988, the Cubs and the Phillies begin the very first night game ever at Wrigley Field. They were only 50 years behind uh, Crosley Field in putting up lights, but that's okay. Uh, it rained in the fourth inning. It was game was called. They finished the next night. It was the first official night game ever at Wrigley the following evening. And here's one for you, Bill. Comes from our stadium quiz on stadiumsusa.com. Mm. If you were a right-handed pull hitter, playing at Wrigley Field, where would your pull side home run land? Would you name the street? Uh, it would be Waveland Avenue. You are correct. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, yes. Beautiful Waveland Avenue. Good. For, well, that's People we're supposed stand to. out there waiting for balls all the time. Yeah, they sure do. They still do it. And that's up there as a quiz item. I almost hesitated answering that because I thought we'd be <laughs> well, giving it away. there's other really great questions there. So, Mark, thank you. Welcome back home. We'll see you next week. Take care, Bill. All right, you too, Mark. Coming up, we touch base with a man who once managed Giant Stadium in New York, Bill Squire. And he talks about the situation regarding the Hall of Fame game in Canton. The turf, the paint, all of it. That is next. What we saw in Canton, Ohio, is the worst nightmare of anyone involved with sports facility management. The cancellation of a game due to what seems to be something of a chemistry set problem. We're going to talk about it with Bill Squires. He is in the sport facility management business in this industry for years. He has managed some of the great stadiums in America, Yankee Stadium. Stadium, Giants Stadium. My goodness, Bill, I led with the idea that this is the absolute worst nightmare that anybody involved in facilities could have. I know your heart has to go out to these people. You know how hard they work in Canton, Ohio. Oh, I certainly do. Not only in Canton, Ohio, but across the country in uh, you know professional, collegiate, and high school uh, venues, whether it be natural grass or synthetic, infield synthetic turf. You know, my heart does go out to him because I, you know, I've experienced situations in my career too where there's been, you know, field issues, and and sometimes it's an act of God, and sometimes, it, you know, it just, you know, just things just happen. It's interesting to take a look at this uh, when the paint was used to go ahead and establish the logos for the game. We all know about those and how important they are. They had a very, very bad mix from this. What was your take on the unfortunate nature of what happened with the Hall of Fame game? Well, I think I only know what you, Bill and everybody else knows from the, the news reports that they're uh, was a situation with the paint where it, it hardened. And uh, and in the opinion of those uh, at the venue, I was not there, so I certainly didn't experience it, didn't see it, but uh, they felt it was unsafe to play. And, you know, as they say, you know, safety is, is paramount. You know, as I stated earlier, you know, I've, I've had situations in, in my career where, for example, Yankee Stadium, we had a college football game uh, played on a, at the stadium back in 1987. And, uh, you know, it rained and rained and rained. And, and uh, we had to replace almost uh, half of the outfield, not half of the outfield, but maybe about 20,000 square feet of natural grass turf because of an act of God. So, you know, things happen, and sometimes they're within our control and sometimes they're not. You know, the NFL has a pretty specific policy regarding review of field conditions. Prior to a game, uh, certainly crews go ahead, they assess the uh, conditions on the playing field. What is that process like? 
Well, I can tell you they do what they call a, a G-Max or a resiliency test where they uh, check the, you know, the, uh, the resiliency of the natural grass fields as well as the synthetic turf fields. And that is really a, you know, a concussion type uh, a test. You want to keep it as resilient as possible. So when parts of the body do hit the, uh, whether it be natural grass, because natural grass can be just as hard as anything. You take a, you take the, uh, you take Green Bay or you take some of those uh, collegiate fields that are northern climate that are natural grass, uh, keeping them soft is, is not keeping them soft or keeping them resilient is, is extremely important. So the, you know, the, the, the ground screws do everything they can within their power to make sure that the fields look good, meaning, uh, the, the natural, uh, grass fields are cut and green and, you know, they receive, uh, all the, the watering and care that they can, resodding if necessary. Um, and then the synthetic turf fields, uh, there is a grooming process. They're not absolutely maintenance free, but, uh, it certainly maintains, um, you know, not as much maintenance as a natural grass field, but they have their work out for them. For example, I can tell you, at Life Stadium the other day, um, you know, there was a Paul McCartney on Sunday, uh, concert on Sunday night. Uh, they, re, you know, they removed all the, the, all the chairs, the stage, the field protection system, and they were right there grooming that field, uh, uh, you know, decompacting it to make sure that it was as soft as possible. And then, and then conducting, uh, GMAX tests, uh, resiliency tests. And the NFL does that standards. And these guys that uh, do these in the NFL for sure have to report their tests to the NFL just to make sure that they're within uh, limits. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us. We wish you continued success with the Right Stuff Consulting and your teaching, which continues. You teach sports management at Columbia University, molding the stadium managers of tomorrow, and I think they all learned something. You have another chapter to add into the course, Bill, so (laughs) that'll be interesting. I'd like to sit in on that one myself. Well, I'm sure that uh, when my course begins in the fall, I can guarantee that one of my students is going to ask me about this, so I guess I'm prepared. (laughs) Oh, very good. Bill, thank you very much. Bill Squires, our guest. That's our program for this week. 